Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org. And please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. All right. Tonight we're going to do a prophecy update and we're going to be looking at 2 Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 6, going down to verse 12. And I decided early on in 2023 that we'd go through. We actually started in 1 Thessalonians, the end of chapter 4, where it starts talking about end time events. And we're going to just continue on all the way through 2 Thessalonians, which is only three chapters long. But um, tonight, restricting it to these verses 6 through 12, because it's specifically addressing the Antichrist. Uh, Although Paul doesn't call him the Antichrist, we get that from John there in uh, 1 John. And we'll get to that scripture where the title Antichrist comes from. But he is called the lawless one. So each month... Uh, I got in the habit several years ago of just looking at prophetic scripture and trying to tie it to some of the events of the news today. And uh, this is something that in Calvary Chapel's uh, Pastor Chuck, the founder of the Calvary Chapel movement, was accustomed to doing specifically only once a year. And here lately, it seems like Lately, meaning the last 10 years or so, so much is going on that once a year isn't enough. But I don't feel that I'm technically a prophecy teacher guy, that I'm the guy you're going to tune into every week to see what's going on. It takes a lot of work to prepare these. And it's not that I'm not willing to do the work. I just don't feel that that's where my call is. And there are guys out there that that's their call. But for me... To try to handle it 12 times a year, it keeps us thinking about end-time events um, while relating it to the Word of God. And so having the biblical worldview where you're looking at the events of the world and looking at these events through the lenses of Scripture, so it's healthy. I began this practice partly because I think it's healthy for me to kind of keep my mind engaged in these things. But, you know, I I feel that the Lord has called me to be a teacher, a preacher of the gospel, and to uh, go through his word as we normally do. Uh, most the times here, we either on a Sunday or Wednesday evening, but once a month, we like to set aside for a prophecy update. So I'm not a prophecy guy. If I had prophetic sight over my own life, I would have known way back in June on the 21st day, which is the last time I gave a prophecy update. If you want to get part one of this message, you got to go back three months. If I had been such a prophetic guy personally over my own life, I would have foreseen that just two days later after giving my last prophecy update that I was going to break my neck, 
by crashing into an oak tree, spend five days in the hospital, spend eight weeks in a neck brace, and just last week starting physical therapy and a little sore today from the physical therapist working on my neck. I kind of look good like this. I don't look up well. I don't turn to the right and left too well, but it's getting better. In fact, I feel like energy is wanting to come back to my body. I'm wanting to move again, but there is a neck that's kind of holding me back a little bit on that. So clearly I don't have prophetic insight in my own life, the trajectory of my own life, but thankfully God has given us his prophetic word regarding the future events that will precede the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we have the word of God that's been given to us and uh, the Bible scholars who kind of look through the Bible and kind of figure out all the different things, uh, divisions of the Bible itself, like this part is prophetic, this part is narrative. They say that one third of the Bible is prophecy. Now, some of that prophecy does or did refer to the first coming of Jesus Christ. So when we read about the prophetic word regarding the first coming of Jesus Christ, we're looking at events that have already taken place and where they who count such things, I've never counted them, but I've heard the number repeated so many times over and over again that it's stuck in my head that there were 330 prophecies connected to Jesus's first coming. But they, those people who count such things, also say that there's over 500 prophecies connected to Jesus's second coming. Also called the day of the Lord, ultimately referring to when Jesus comes to set up his millennial reign upon the earth. So there's a number of things that will take place before the Lord's second coming. Like tonight, we're going to be looking at the revelation, the revealing of the Antichrist. And thus far in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we only looked at the first five verses, but it was three months ago. On our last prophecy update, we learned about one of three things that will precede the coming of Christ. First, Paul wrote to us and said there would be the falling away. And this refers to the departure of many people from the truth of God's word and faith in Jesus Christ. And this is currently happening in our country. I'll have some statistics on this a little bit later. But it's currently happening in our country and in parts of our world today. And tonight, we'll look at the other two things that Paul revealed to the Thessalonians regarding the revelation of the man of sin and the removal of the restrainer. So three things that we find that before the day of the Lord, there's going to be verse 3, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, unless the falling of way comes first, the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all so that he is called God or that is worship so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Verse 5, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So we're going to pick up from there. Something that Paul wanted to write, it was so important to Paul that he wrote it in the letter, sent it back to the church in Thessalonica, 
And he said, remember, I told you about these things when I was with you. And now I want to put it in writing. I want to make sure you have this. And so I'm going to go ahead and just read the context, verses 6 through 12. Open us in prayer, and we'll get into our prophecy update tonight. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6 says, Now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of the lawless, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he, he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless none lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the work of Satan with all power, signs and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they may believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Father, even reading through some of the words of this passage tonight, we find that there are many in our own country and many in many parts of this world that fit into the unbelieving category of those who have uh, unpleasure and unrighteousness, those who do not believe the truth, they reject Jesus outright because of the pleasures of this world. We see, Lord, that even as we have read tonight from this passage of the falling away, we are watching it happen in our country today. And we're seeing the lawlessness, although the lawless one is coming, the lawlessness that has already taken place in our country and in parts of the world. So open our eyes, Lord. Help us to have this biblical worldview where we read your word and we uh, look at the conditions of our world and, Lord, kind of get an idea of where we're at as far as the prophetic word is concerned. Give us wisdom by your Holy Spirit tonight. And we thank you, Lord, for being able to share in communion tonight, to be reminded of the body and blood, Lord Jesus, that you sacrificed, that you died, that you were buried, that you rose again, but you also ascended into heaven. And we thank you, Lord, that that truth it continues to be testified to this day. May we be a church that's faithful to remember the work of communion Till you come, may we be faithful and thankful. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So he begins with the restrainer. As I was reading from my Bible, um, I'm reading from a, I don't know exactly. I bought it in 1993. So it could be a 1992 New King James. They were kind of brand new back then. Um, but I bought this when we lived out in California, and I was going to buy two of them, but they didn't have two. So I bought the one. I figured I'd wear out one and have a new one ready to go. And I was right. I'm on my third cover on this Bible, so I have worked through it quite a bit. But as I was reading when it talked about the restrainer, they, the Bible translators 
were already given us a hint of who they believe the restrainer is because they capitalize uh, the reference there that um, he, the mystery of the lawless one, is already at work. Only he, capital letter, he who now restrains will do so until he who now restrains is taken out of the way. So by that capital he on both of those words in verse 7, they're telling us an idea that um, this is talking about God or talking about the Spirit of God, which is one of the beliefs referring to the restrainer. So we have the translators because the Greek wrote in all capital letters. So they couldn't determine that one thing was capitalized over another. They were all capitalized. So all the letters were capital. Um, you had to read the context to kind of know who is being talked about here. And we do have God being talked about here. And they are saying that this is God who is restrainer. The restrainer. Early on in church history, uh, the early church interpreted that Rome was the restrainer. Others have seen that uh, Christian missionaries have been the restrainer. Or human government has been the restrainer. However, apocalyptic texts like Revelation and Daniel, when they portray human government in the end times, it's always under Satan's control. So the human government isn't necessarily holding back Satan who wants to come and influence the world. It would be better to believe that God is that restraining force. Some of the beliefs that have come out of this, and I think it's a combination of the two, but the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ or the working of the Holy Spirit uh, through God's people and uh, being raised Baptist I had always felt or been taught early on that the restrainer is the Holy Spirit when God takes the Holy Spirit from the earth. Now, I don't know if I was taught this, but this is my memory growing up in the church that basically the Holy Spirit is gone. All hell will break loose on the earth. The Antichrist will come. Seven years of tribulation. And... I am not convinced if my memory is correct or not, but that's that's how I grew up thinking. So I'm wondering if I was taught that way. I do think God will, the restrainer will depart, but I do not believe that the Holy Spirit will totally abandon the earth. That was my thinking early on as a young boy, as a young adult even, um, I just think the Spirit will work differently. We get in the book of Revelation, we see that many people from every tribe's tongue and nations will come to faith in Jesus Christ. So God is still going to be working on this earth, even during the midst of the calamity of the great tribulation, the seven years of tribulation. So I believe, along with many others, that the restrainer is the Holy Spirit, combined with the activity of the Lord's church, and they went out, Mark 16, 20, and they preached everywhere, the Lord working with them, confirming the word through the accompanying signs. So you had uh, the witnesses with the Holy Spirit, the Lord working with them, the signs. So the sign gifts along with the preaching of the word of God going forth early on, as Mark reminds us in Mark 16, 20. 
And John's gospel in um, chapters 14 through 16, not every verse in those chapters, but we get a pretty good understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit in those chapters. So if you want to do a study on the Holy Spirit, I would suggest that you go to John's Gospels, look at verses 14 through 16, see where it talks about the Holy Spirit. I, I, my head, it's locked in. John 14, 26, the Spirit of Truth. John 15, 26, they like the 26 verses on those. Um, but he talks about that in John 17. He talks about the Holy Spirit, whom John calls in this section the Helper, the Spirit of Truth, and the Holy Spirit. And he tells us uh, two of the three things that the Holy Spirit uh, does for the church, that he dwells with us, he is in us. And then we have to go over to Luke's Gospel in the book of Acts to learn that he will come upon us. And so the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of all believers, that he dwells with us. He, uh, they refer to this as the wooing, wooing of the Holy Spirit prior to our conversion, the Holy Spirit drawing us to Christ. He will be in you. It speaks about the Holy Spirit entering into our lives the moment we are saved. And he shall come upon you. A Greek word, epi, to come upon. It speaks about the empowering of the Holy Spirit upon believers' lives so that they could be witnesses of Jesus to a lost and dying world in need of a Savior. So we should take comfort that the Restrainer, the Holy Spirit of God, he has control over Satan. Satan is active in this world, but he's being restrained right now. One day the Restrainer will let go of his grip. And as I said earlier, all hell will break loose upon this earth. It may not initially appear that way to the earth dwellers at that time, but it will become that way once the lawless one, the son of perdition, begins to rule upon this earth for a very short time, thankfully. So the Lord's restraining work, it's seen in the book of Job, where Yahweh is in heaven, Satan comes before the Lord there. And the Lord asks Satan in Job 1, verse 8, he says, Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, blameless, an upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan then retorts to God that Job serves you because you protect him. And so Satan basically told God, take away his protection. And then Job 1.11, Satan said, Job will curse you to your face. So God responded to this. He said, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. Job 1 verse 12. So Yahweh allowed Satan to do great horrific things against Job, but he limited Satan. He set boundaries upon Satan. Right now, Satan is limited. Boundaries have been set upon him. What was true of Job's day is also true to this day. Yet one day the restrainer will be taken out of the way in order for Satan 
and his antichrist to have free reign upon this earth, but only for a season. I believe the rapture of the church is the best way to describe the restrainer being taken out, the church being taken out, this era of grace that we find ourselves in right now that leads us into the last days prophecies upon this earth. In verse 7, he speaks about the lawless one and lawlessness. For the mystery of the lawless, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So the mystery of lawlessness, a mystery in the Bible, refers to a truth that has not yet been revealed, but God reveals this truth through his prophetic word. So it's a mystery. We can't understand it. And God, through his prophetic word, through prophets, through the author of scriptures, gives us some revelation of this mystery. The mystery that surrounds the coming of the Antichrist means that God has held back some of this information concerning his coming. But he does give us a little information about the Antichrist. We read of the Antichrist being revealed in Daniel, Daniel 9, 26 and 27 tells us that after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself, and all the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it will be with the flood till the end of the war of desola desolations are determined. In verse 27, then he... Now, this is speaking about Satan, the Antichrist. He shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of that week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall one who makes desolate even until the consummation, which is determined, which is poured out on the desolate. So, that one week in Daniel's timeline, he speaks of 70 weeks altogether, and each week representing seven years. So he gives us a timeline there, and that one week there, referring to a seven-year period, way back in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 27. So the Antichrist was revealed to Daniel. He saw a glimmer of the Antichrist. Jesus prophesied concerning the Antichrist in John 14, 30. He said, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, but he has nothing on me. And again, in Matthew 24, 15, and in verses 23 and 24, Jesus said, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. So Jesus tying together the passage we just read from Daniel to a future event. Standing in the holy place, whoever reads this, let him understand. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ or there, do not believe them. For false Christ, false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So prior to the coming of the Antichrist, there would be false Christs, false prophets, showing signs and wonders, great signs and wonders, and if possible, even deceiving the elect. Paul gives us a little more information 
about the lawless one, the Antichrist, the son of perdition, many names that he has. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, we already read this, verses 3 and 4. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. The man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So now Paul, tying back to Jesus in Matthew 24, where he says that, you see, as spoken of, of the prophet Daniel, him standing in the holy place. Paul gives us a little more information about the Antichrist, the evil one standing in the holy place, that he exalts himself above all that is called God. He is, desires to be worshipped. And it's John, the apostle, in 1 John 2.18, that gives us the title, the title of Antichrist. 1 John 2.18, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. So the false prophets, the false Christ, they rise up, they show great signs and wonders to deceive. By these things, we understand that we're in the last hour. So the Antichrist is shrouded in mystery, but God has revealed a bit of what he entails, what he will do, and about his coming, so that those who believe in Jesus would not be deceived. But the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work in this world as John said in 1 John 2.18, many antichrists have come. By this we know it's the last hour. In 1 John 4.3, every spirit that does not confess that Jesus is Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. So John specifically battling against Gnosticism when he wrote those words, every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And he said, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. So the importance of confessing that Jesus came in the flesh, his virgin birth, his sacrificial death, Upon the cross, his burial, his resurrection from the grave, his ascension into heaven, these are foundational principles of the church that we are to stand upon. Those who argue against such things, this is the spirit of the Antichrist. So Satan wanting to be exalted, worshipped, in the spirit of the Antichrist, we think about Israel today, and a little of the news that's coming out of Israel. Uh, it's a big week in New York. The UN is all the world leaders coming to the UN. Uh, not all the world leaders, because not everyone is part of the UN. And there's a war over in Europe because there are those who are not part of the UN and those who are threatening to become part of the UN and 
getting Russia all upset and all that. But they're here. They're in New York. So much so that <laughs> the New, New Yorkers, the government there told New Yorkers to please take transit because it's going to be so busy around here with all the world leaders coming in. Uh, make it easy on them. I don't know if I'd necessarily want to make it easy on them, but they're coming in. Biden spoke, and he talked about Israel while he was there. This is an article from today, September 20th. And this is what Biden said. America continues to work for both border normalization of relations with Israel and the Middle East. (laughs) Those words right there. Border normalization. So concerned about the border of Ukraine and Russia, Israel and the Middle East. And what would we say? What about our border? We're not worried about that. All right. I'll read what Biden said now. I'll get off that. America continues to work both for the border normalization of relations with Israel, the Middle East, as well as two states for two peoples. So the two-state solution. U.S. Joe Biden said, President Joe Biden said when he addressed the United Nations General Assembly in New York on Tuesday, yesterday, regarding the Middle East, Biden said that the U.S. is working to further normalize relations between Israel and the Arab world, while at the same time continuing to work toward the peace deal between Israel and the Palestinian Authority based on two states for two people. So I went back on an article that was written about the two states for two people. This was written in 2016, and this gives you an idea of the difficulty of this two-state solution. It's been talked about for a long time. And here, the title of this article is The Deadlock of Occupation and the Dead End of the Two-State Solution. That's the title of this article from 2016. And then the subtitle is actually a sentence. It says, Israelis and Palestinians are locked in conflicting and irreconcilable differences of what happened here over the last 100 years. So they're tying it all the way back. This has been going on for 100 years. And then the article states, two paragraphs from the article, the Palestinians hold fast to their belief that all of Israel is Palestine under occupation, and it does not matter that there was never a country called Palestine to which an occupation could be applied. This is why Tel Aviv and Haffa are no less illegally occupied territories than the Jewish settlements of Ufra and Ariel. The Palestinians insist that the difference between the occupation of 1948 and that of 1967 is artificial and irrelevant. For them, it's all or nothing. So... People today forget that. So what what happened when, in May 12, 1948, when Israel became, or May 14, 1948, when Israel became a state, a nation again, um, 
the people from Jordan were living in the Middle East in the area of Israel today and they were told to leave the area allow Israel to become a state and then we'll have a war against Israel we'll push them into the Mediterranean Sea and you guys can have your houses back so that's what they were told but these were mostly Jordanians um, Yasser Arafat was not a Palestinian he was an Egyptian but they have formed this nation, this people that did not actually exist now, that now is talked about as if they had always existed. But they actually are a combination of Middle Eastern nations coming and now being called the Palestinians. So for them, it's all or nothing. The 1967 war, the seven-day war, was that about pushing Israel into the Mediterranean Sea. It did not work for them. They only gained more land at that time. But today on the streets of Tel Aviv, there's also trouble within the Israeli government to where uh, the title of this, Barak, said that there will be blood. So the Orthodox rabbi was surrounded, harassed by anti-government mob on the streets of Tel Aviv just hour before Prime Minister E.U. Barak said Israel was going ongoing anti-government protests would end in bloodshed while the anti-government protests have been about opposition to the judicial reform that's taken place. A lot of secular leftists are coming against the ultra-Orthodox Jews. And so right now they're trying to do judicial reform in Israel, in the nation of Israel. And they're coming against the ultra-Orthodox Jews that mostly settle in Judea and Samaria, which they deem the occupation. And as this is going on yesterday, Netanyahu arrived in New York and in New York, anti-activists uh, launched a week of protests. This is happening right now. So Israel having problems, uh, struggles within their own nation with these judicial reforms. Protests have been breaking out all summer long. Uh, because of that, uh, it's beginning to become violent. Biden's talking about, again, the two-state solution. Netanyahu arrives in New York. There's a week-long of protests taking place in New York itself. And times are troubling. These troubling times reminds us that the Antichrist is coming, and many Antichrists have already come. Lawlessness is one of these signs. In verses 8 through 10, in verse 8 it says... I love this. As I was looking at this this morning, Paul wrote in verse 8, Then the lawlessness, lawless, ha, then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So what I love about this, Paul begins to talk about the lawless one, but he holds off for a moment and he gives us the end of the story. The lawless one is coming, but he will be consumed by the breath of the Lord's mouth and the brightness of the Lord's coming. So he gives us a glimpse of the end of the story before he tells us about the lawless one 
being revealed. So being consumed, it's a Greek word that refers to he's going to be taken away, he's going to be abolished, he's going to be destroyed, referring to being entirely rendered entirely idle or useless. And Paul describes the Antichrist's demise through the coming of the Lord, and he gives a twofold work of the Lord's coming. It's with the breath and the brightness of his coming. The breath is the uh, same word we have in Greek for spirits. It's pneuma. By the breath of the Lord and by the brightness of his coming, Isaiah 11.4 says, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. So the very breathing of the glorified Jesus will slay the lawless one like the blast of a fiery furnace. And truly the Lord speaks, and so it is accomplished. As we're reminded concerning the very word of God, Isaiah 55:11, so shall my word be that comes out of my mouth. It shall not return void to me. It shall accomplish what I please. It will prosper in the things for which I sent it. God speaks and it is done. And regarding the brightness of Jesus' coming, Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9, he says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, the brightness of his power. We see that again. I, I see it in Revelation 1.16. And he had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in his strength. Out of his mouth, the, the word of God, the breath of his mouth, his countenance, countenance, his shining, his strength. So before the lawless one is ever really described to us in detail about what he will do when he comes. Paul says, don't worry about it. Let me give you a glimpse of the end of the story. When Jesus comes with the pneuma, the breath of his light, breath of his mouth, and with his glory, the brightness of his coming, the lawless one will be destroyed. In verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, Signs and lying wonders. So the Antichrist, according to the working of Satan, who will possess this coming world leader to accomplish his agenda on the earth. So what is the work or the agenda of Satan? Well, Satan has always desired to be above God, his Christ, and God's people. There's been this battle going on since Satan came in to the garden and deceived Eve, who took up the fruit and ate of it and gave it to her husband. Now, I would say even before God created the heavens and the earth, that some believe 
between Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 1, verse 2, that there was a war in heaven that took place. But Satan's power, Deutimus, it's a, a word that we use in the Greek and talking about the empowering of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Well, the Deutimus, same Greek word is used here, he has all power. It speaks about a, his ability, a power for performing miracles. He performs signs and lying wonders. Here's an interesting thing about that. The signs speaking about miraculous acts, works, uh, the Lying wonders, something strange, something to marvel at, to behold. Uh, Vine spoke of this, these three words. He wrote a paragraph about this. He said, a sign is intended to appeal to the understanding. A wonder appeals to the imagination. A power indicates its source as supernatural. Wonders are manifested as divine operations. Thirteen times, nine of them recorded in the book of Acts, three times they are attributed to the work of Satan through human agents. And Jesus in Matthew 24, 24, Mark 13, 22, speaks about the Antichrist coming, and here we read about it in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9, but the signs and wonders, Satan working through the lawless one with powers, with signs and lying wonders that coincide, I believe, with the seven years of tribulation, Satan's reign upon this earth that Daniel and John wrote about. Daniel, as we already read, Daniel nine twenty six, when the people of the prince who is to come he shall confirm a covenant, verse 27, with many for one week. Revelation 13, 4, so they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? So he had power, signs, lying wonders, and in verse 10 we get a fourth one, with all unrighteous deception, among those who are perishing, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. So here he adds a fourth of that of the Antichrist. He has power, he has signs, he has lying wonders, and unrighteous deception that is coming upon those who did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Before I went to lunch today, I was pondering that word, love of the truth, and I looked at a couple of my commentaries, and I don't know, they didn't really say anything about that. I looked up Pastor Chuck's teaching on it. He didn't say too much about the specific phrase, the love of the truth, because when we go on to verse 10, he adds to that, uh, verse 10 is the love of the truth, and then he goes on in verse 12 to say they did not believe the truth. So he talks about love and faith in connection with truth. And so I went to lunch thinking about that. I came back and I looked up again. This time I um, went into my online Bible program and began to look at various commentaries about the love of the truth. I really didn't find anybody zeroing in on that specific word. 
but uh, it stood out to me. They did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. So there was an absence, the love of the truth. They had no desire for truth. The truth, I believe, speaking of Jesus Christ himself, and we're going to look at that a little further in my next point. So I don't want to go too far in that, but remember that phrase, the love of the truth. And then when we get down to they did not believe the truth, we'll talk about both of those phrases when we get to our final point. So the unbelieving world, the lawlessness, lawless one comes with power, with signs, lying wonders and unrighteous deceptions. He appears to do good for the benefit of humanity. But his true agenda is to have authority over Yahweh, his son, and God's people. And we're warned in Ephesians 5, 6, and 7, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. So the spirit of the Antichrist, is it here in the United States? I believe it is. I believe that many Antichrists is coming, have come, and they are here present, though the Antichrist hasn't been revealed yet. Jonathan Kahn, uh, in an article, Welcome to the Biblical Times America. This is his title, Welcome to Biblical Times America. And so he compares it with the condition of Israel in the Old Testament of what's going on in the United States today. A nation that once worshipped God but ceases to set itself up against, set itself up for worse times than ever experienced before that relationship. Jonathan Kahn, a rabbi and best-selling author, says that is exactly what America is experiencing now and has been for decades. Kahn equated the state of America to Luke 11 when Jesus explained that the unclean spirit left the house, found no acceptable quarter, then returned to its first house, and then it goes and brings seven other spirits, even more evil than itself. They enter and dwell there, and the state of the, the last state of the person was worse than the first. And Khan compared modern-day United States with Old Testament Israel, which was known for following God, then leaving God, Old Testament Israel, they followed God. They had this, in the book of Judges, I think there were 13 cycles of sin that they went through. And they followed God, and then they left God, and God bailed them out. They followed God, they left God. And when we get to Judges, you'll see this cycle repeated over and over again. He places the United States in one of those cycles. And I truly believe that the United States have seen several of these cycles. And only by God's grace, he's brought our country into revival to reverse the trend. I think the Calvary Chapel movement was birthed in one of those revivals that reversed the trend. And we are desperately in need of a similar revival or greater, or the trend will not be reversed. So anyways, comparing it to the United States, to the Old Testament Israel, who followed God and then left God, it would be like... If we were in Israel when it was turning away from God and now it's embracing Baal and apologizing for what it did to Baal and Nazareth and Molech and all of that, he said. 
prostitution, child sacrifice, were prevalent in the worship of Asherah and Molech. Khan contends the same thing appears to be going on with abortion and gender confusion or denial. It is not an accident that it's pagan, and now we are the champion of that. Here in the United States, we used to be the champion of faith, and Khan is saying that we are now the champion of that which is pagan. You probably heard that COVID season is upon us again. So I'd read last month that when they track COVID now, they're tracking COVID, flu, and pneumonia together. So they're lumping three separate things into one category to track it. It makes it appear worse. I would challenge all of you, look at a graph of COVID statistics. You can find it just COVID statistics um, from 2020 until now. I would challenge you to look up that graph because it begins in 2020 at like hardly nothing when it began back in March of 2020. And right now we're in a state where it's hardly nothing, but it's really getting uh, rivaled up in the media and the government starting to talk about it again. And the CDC has approved another experimental vaccine for all of us to take. But it's interesting because last month I looked up the graph, I looked up again today, and you see the spike in the height of the COVID deaths and whatever they may have been, you see that. And we're kind of like right where right now, where we were when everything began. It's not trending upward fastly or quickly. Um, even though it may double, it's not nowhere near the height of their statistics. So I would encourage you to take a look at that graph. It may give you comfort. If you're a little nervous, I see more people wearing masks once again. If you're getting nervous, just kind of look around and see what's going on. I looked up the vaccine. I got an article. There's some who disagree with the COVID vaccine. What you need to know, the FDA wants an annual COVID vaccine. So now they want it. I had my physical therapist last week. He's saying, yeah, it's going to be like the annual flu shot. And I said, yeah, which I haven't had one since 2009. So they're not too annual for me. But this is medically speaking. So I'm going to read from them, not my opinion. Despite the greater convenience, not everyone is enthusiastic about the idea of an annual COVID shot. COVID-19 does not behave the same as the flu, says Eric Topol, MD, editor-in-chief of Medescape, trying to mimic flu vaccine and have a year of protection from a single COVID immunization is not based on science, he says. Carlos DiRio, MD of Emory University in Atlanta, president of the Infectious Disease Society of America, agrees. He said, we would like to see something simple and similar to the, like the flu, but I also think we need to have the science to guide us, and I think science right now is not necessarily there. So that's going on. You guys can determine that, pray about it, where you're going to go with that, but it's going to become a challenge um, as things are ticking up. Some uh, joke around with the COVID uptick that election season is upon us again. So what better way to uh, get us to 
reshape the elections than to lock down our nation once again. I don't know if that will happen. But here's something that COVID did. This I found more interesting than anything else today. Uh, article about why U.S. churches are on the decline. And they connected it to being accelerated by COVID. So the title of this article, Losing Their Religion, Why U.S. Churches Are on the Decline, subtitle, As the U.S. Adjusts to the Increasingly Non-Religious Population, Thousands of Churches Are Closing Each Year, Probably Accelerated by COVID. That's the subtitle. (laughs) Here are three paragraphs, four paragraphs from that article. Churches are closing at rapid numbers in the U.S. Researchers say... As congregations dwindle across the country, a younger generation of Americans abandon Christianity altogether, even as faith continues to dominate America politics or American politics. As the U.S. adjusts to the increasingly non-religious population, thousands of churches are closing each year in the country a figure that experts believe may have been accelerated since the COVID-19 pandemic. The closures, even for a temporary period, impacted a lot of churches. People breaking that habit of attending church means a lot of churches had to work hard to get people to come back. In the last three years, all signs are pointing to a continued pace of closures probably similar to 2019, possibly higher, as there, there's been really a rapid rise in American individuals who say they are not religious. The state of faith in the United States. The nuns, we have no religion whatsoever. So we close out in two verses, 11 and 12, verse 11. For this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie. So a strong delusion from God will come upon those who never accept Jesus Christ that they would believe the lie of the lawless one, his power, his signs, his lying wonders, and his deception that would ultimately seal the fate of the unbelievers. And also in verse 12, that they may be condemned with those who do not believe the truth but had unpleasure in unrighteousness. So why does God seem so hard upon these people? Well, Paul gives us two reasons. First, verse 10, they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. John, 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. So the love of the truth, that God loved us and sent his only begotten son to be a propitiation, a covering for our sins. And second, because they did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in unrighteousness. Once again, love is mentioned, John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But verse 18, sometimes we stop right there, but you've got to keep reading in John chapter 3. Verse 18, he who believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned. He who does not 
believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Verse 36, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Those who believe in Jesus have received the love of the truth. They have believed the truth that they might be saved. But those who do not believe have rejected this love, the love of the truth. They do not believe the truth. And so they stand condemned already. Jesus explained a little more of this condemnation in verses 19 through 21 of John 3. He says to Nicodemus, And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world. Men love darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. When it comes to the truth of the gospel, there is no middle ground. You either believe or you do not believe. You believe and find life, or you do not believe and will find judgment and death. It is my prayer that we are those who believe and have found life. We are those who have received the love of the truth, believe the truth that we might be saved. Let's go ahead and stand. Tonight, Lord, we thank you for the teaching of your word and these things that we have gleaned from 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 6 through 12. Also looking at some of the things going on in our world and specifically looking at Israel and the United States and even how what's going on in Israel and at the UN, how these things are being tied together with Netanyahu um, President Biden, both in New York right now for the United Nations meeting together, Biden talking about the two-state solution. Yeah, man is going to try to bring peace. Lord, one day the lawless one will come. The Antichrist will set up. He will bring a peace plan. Maybe all these things are the spirit of the Antichrist coming. False Christ, false Antichrist. But it's teaching us, according to your word tonight, that the Antichrist is coming. The spirit of the Antichrist is already in our world. And we see it in the our own country, Lord. The anger, the lawlessness that is abounding in our own country. Though the lawless one has not yet come, the Antichrist has not yet set up his kingdom, lawlessness is all over this country. Oh God, we need the spirit of your revival to come upon this nation once again. I don't know, Lord, if that will happen. One day you will say, as enough is enough, and your son will come, and you will judge this world in righteousness and in truth. But until that day, we pray, Lord, for many souls to be saved. And if by your grace, Lord, you would send revival, let it begin in this place, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Pray that God would bless you, keep you, that his face would always shine upon you and give you peace. God bless.